When I was in college, I worked my way through college at an airline. It was a small, rinky-dink airline called Great Lakes Airlines. Uh, many people have not heard of it. Most people actually have not heard of it. Uh, it's actually gone bankrupt since then. We ran United Express. So we had little 19-seater planes, no bathroom, which that, that leads to a lot of different stories, but we won't get into those. I was a fueler, though. That's what I did. So that was my title, I should say. That's not exactly all that I did. I also cleaned windshields. So anytime they needed, you know, windshields had too many bugs on it, who would they call? The fuelers. That wasn't all that we did, though. We also, there, we had one group of planes. I think there was like six of them all together that were 32 seats, and they had labs. So every now and then, they'd land, and their labs were full, and you know who got the call to empty the labs. That was something else I did. So every now and then, you know, just to have fun when we'd get a new guy, we'd uh, ask them as we were, you know, cleaning the windshield or something. And actually, I, I'll be honest, I never actually did this, but some of my friends who worked with me, they'd be cleaning the windshield, and they'd be training a new guy, and they'd say to the new guy, hey, next I have to clean that propeller. Can you go get some prop wash? <laughs> and so he'd say, yeah, where do I get the prop, prop wash? And he'd, he'd point over to the group of rampers over there and say, that group of guys, they'll know where it is. Go ask them for some prop wash. So he'd walk over and he'd ask this big group of people, hey, uh, can I get some prop wash? And that group of people would like hold back their laughter as much as they could. And they'd say, oh, we don't have any here. You see those mechanics over there? They're going to have the prop wash. And they'd go walk over to the mechanics and say, hey, I need to wash some propellers. Do you have some prop wash? And it would go on like that until finally someone couldn't hold it back and say, there's no such thing as prop wash. We don't wash propellers. And everyone would have a good laugh at this person's misfortune. So that would happen every now and then. And, and why I highlight that, it's not that like, huge theological idea, but I highlight it because there was some false information that was passed. Is that me? Let's make it that. It must be. There's, there's nothing else going on. It's, huh? the All right, it's the pancakes. That's right. That's, that's the scapegoat in our house now. It's the pancakes. <laughs> so, so I highlight that because there were actions that were taken by an individual based on teaching. They were taught that we washed propellers. I mean, they were, being, they were going through training. They were taught how to wash the windshields, which, by the way, washing windshields, very easy to do. You spray the windshield. Anyways, I won't get into that, but <laughs> it's really easy to do. Everything we did was super easy. So washing props should seem easy enough as well. So, so they got bought into this because they were in training. They were being taught how to be a fueler. It was easy to buy into it. And this false information led them down a false path that made them look like fools. I bring that up because there are false teachers when it comes to the Word of God. When it comes to Christianity, when it comes to theology, when it comes, into, when it comes to core beliefs, there are false teachers that will teach you false teachings. And false beliefs always end up 
in false behaviors, or I should say wrong behaviors. Our theology, our theology produces our behavior. So if you're taught bad theology, it will pan out in some type of bad behavior. For example, we might say something like, I believe God is sovereign. And so you believe, you say, or you profess, God is sovereign. But then you're driving down the road, and someone cuts you off. And you get really mad, and you shake your fist at that person. And it just revealed your true theology. Your true theology isn't that God is sovereign and God is good. Your true theology is, I'm God and my time is valuable. And you just took a bit out of my time. Therefore, I am now mad at you. Do you see how that works? So, oftentimes we'll, we'll state of a theology, but it's not our true theology. And we'll have some type of information, but, but it's not our true theology. So, theology always produces behavior. That's something that we have to get. And sometimes it's, it's bad theology that we know, that we need to correct. And sometimes it's bad theology that we don't even know we have. But it still needs to be corrected. And that's what we're going to examine today as we go through 2 Peter. So we're starting a new series. And in all honesty, this is, this is one bigger series all about grace. So it started off with 1 Peter, and we started into this idea of growing in grace, that God has lavished his grace upon you. And now it's time for us to grow in that grace. Meaning, before you came to know Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a slave to sin. You couldn't get out of your sin. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, he removed you from being dead in your trespasses and sins and made you alive with him. All of a sudden, you had freedom from sin. Now it's time to grow in that. That's his grace. Now it's time to mature in that grace that he has created us in. So we start off with growing in grace, and we looked at 1 Peter throughout all of that. 1 Peter actually ends, uh, uh, not, not the final word, but... One of his concluding statements is, stand firm in God's grace. And then 2 Peter goes into how we stand firm in God's grace. But 1 Peter was also written during a time of persecution. 2 Peter is also written during a time of persecution. In fact, 2 Peter is written right before Peter dies. But 1 Peter, and then we looked at Mark. And I didn't even mention grace throughout Mark, right? I just mentioned he's greater than. Jesus is greater than. He's greater than our sin that he has freed us from. Jesus is greater than. But that's a part of growing in grace. That's a part of God's grace. Is that he is greater than our sin and he has lavished that grace on us. And his grace is greater than our sin. And the whole reason that we can grow in grace, the whole reason that we can stand in grace, is because Jesus is greater than. So we went from growing to grace to he is greater than, which is why we can even grow in grace. And now we're going to end this series with standing in grace. And what has happened with, is during the time of persecution, there was a bit of chaos in the church. Nero was the Caesar, and he was burning Christians alive. And there was chaos in the church. And in the time of that chaos, false teachers began to emerge. And these false teachers 
started claiming false doctrine, and it was all for some type of greedy gain. And because they wanted some type of gain, they, they twisted scripture to benefit themselves. So in the midst of that chaos, develops these false teachers, and Peter is writing to confront the false teachers and to encourage the church to stand in God's grace against the false teachers. I think it's my shirt is rubbing up against this bad boy. Oh, you got to change that real quick. Sorry. I say bad boy a lot, and uh, one day, my buddy says bad boy a lot too, and one day his daughter asked his wife, why does dad call you bad boy? You're not a boy and you're not bad. So sometimes I think there's so much language that we use that we don't even think about that our kids reveal, right? Anyways, so that's the whole point, is that there were false teachers that were coming up in the midst of chaos. Now, I think this is important for us. So I wanted to walk through God's grace because if we, look into, if we could look into the future, we see persecution coming, right? So I wouldn't say that we as Americans are persecuted. I wouldn't say that. We're not being burned alive. But it, it doesn't take much for something to change. And we're starting to see a political climate changing to where all it will take is four, not even four years. It doesn't even have to take four years to where Christians can become persecuted. So I want us to prepare for, for persecution that could be coming. So part of that is growing in God's grace, maturing in that position that God has, has put us in. Another part of that is recognizing that Jesus is greater than, and the whole reason why we can live in grace is because Jesus is greater than. But then in the midst of the chaos, and we're already starting to see this happen, in the midst of the chaos and in the midst of persecution, false teachers start to bend to the world's demands. And we start to see Christians who were at one time solid in the word, who are at one time submitting to the word, who are at one time completely devoted to the word of God, who will now twist scripture so that they can fall in line with the world that doesn't want to hear what scripture has to say. And in the midst of the chaos, those false teachers can arise. And what we need to do is stand in God's grace. And so I think 2 Peter is the perfect way to end this longer series on God's grace. That's what we're going to get into today. And to start it off with is Peter's introduction. It was very common in those days that an introduction would kind of give you the basis for the rest of the letter. 2 Peter is no different. So 2 Peter is going to start off with what seems like just an introduction, but this introduction actually is very heavy theologically. It has a lot of theology in it, and we have to understand this theology. Because if we don't understand this theology, not only will we fall prey to false teachers, but our theology will change our behavior. So if we want to know how to live in grace, we have to be able to understand how God has lavished his grace upon us. So open up to 2 Peter. I used to have this habit of reading through our scripture and then going back and kind of dissecting it. So I think we'll, we'll pick that back up. We stopped it for Mark because 
we were taking off too, too big a chunks, but I think we'll pick that up. We only have four verses today. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to our own glory and excellence. Sorry, to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. All right, there's a lot going on here. So he starts off with Simon Peter. He's going to introduce himself as the author. Simon Peter, it's pretty uh, uncontested that he is the author. Uh, in those days, it was pretty typical to have two names. Simon would be his Jewish name. Peter would be his Greek name. And then he identifies himself as a servant. Now, I don't like this. Some of your translations will say a slave. That's a better translation here. The Greek word is doulos, and doulos means slave. There was another term for household servant, and, and I make a big deal of this because there is a very important theological idea that Peter's trying to get across, that he counts himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, not just a servant. A servant serves and goes home. A servant takes his wages and does, does, does what he wants with those wages. A servant can quit. A servant still calls the shots in his life. A slave, on the other hand, a slave is someone who is owned by someone else. A slave doesn't go home at night. A slave doesn't do whatever they want, whenever they want. A slave doesn't quit. But most importantly, a slave no longer calls the shots on his own life. And what Peter is getting across here is that he is no longer the one who calls the shots for his life. Jesus Christ is the one who calls the shots for his life. His life no longer belongs to himself, but his life belongs to Jesus and Jesus is going to be the one to call the shots. Everything he does is going to be in submission to Jesus. Jesus now owns his life. Peter no longer is the one in control. Now, a lot of people don't like the sound of that. I want to be the one. And especially in America, we love freedom, don't we? And so we want to be free. And there are a lot of philosophers who have wanted freedom, and so they, they throw off the shackles of religion, and they throw off the shackles of the, the way God has ordered life in order to have their freedom. But what they don't understand is that we as created beings were created to serve. We were created to be in submission to God. So in our desire for freedom, we throw off the shackles of being a slave to God, and what we think we're doing is stepping into freedom, but what we're really doing is stepping into slavery to something else. 
you will always be a slave to something. It may be God, and that slavery leads to life, or it may be slavery to sin, which leads to death. But you will be a slave to something. It may be your own desires, and you may think, well, that's really freedom because my freedom is to be a slave to the desires, whatever I want. But the problem is, those desires will eventually take control of you. And it is no longer you calling the shots, but your own desire that call the shots in your life. Have you ever wondered why you do the things you hate? And you swear you'd never do that again because you hate that you do that thing. It's because that thing has become your owner. And you are now a slave to that desire. We will be slaves to something, whether it is God leading to life or whether it is our own desire leading to death. So he is a slave to Jesus Christ. And he's also an apostle. Now this term apostle means that he was sent by Jesus, with Jesus' authority, okay? So Jesus had commissioned apostles to go on his behalf with his authority. I think that's important to note because today there are no apostles left living. The apostles were commissioned by Jesus to go with his authority. So Peter is a slave who goes with Jesus' authority. This is also important because the false teachers were not apostles. They did not go with the authority of Jesus. They went with their own authority. So when he uses the term authority, he's not appealing to his own, or when he uses the term apostle, he's not appealing to his own authority, he's appealing to the authority of Jesus. Today, since we don't have apostles that were commissioned by Jesus, the authority we appeal to now is the authority of Scripture. So false teachers will try to claim authority over your life. But the final authority lies with Scripture. So if you have a pastor that's trying to claim authority over you, but rejects Scripture, it's time to no longer submit to their authority. Because the final authority for us lies with Scripture, not with some apostolic office. All right? There, are, there is no office within the church that is above the authority of Scripture. So, Peter, and Peter recognizes that as well, but he's also appealing to the authority that Jesus has that he sent him out with. All right. So, that's the author. That's, that's who Peter is describing himself as. Then we have the audience. To those who have obtained a faith of eternal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So these people have obtained a faith of equal standing. The word obtained here means to uh, freely receive. So he's writing to people who have freely received a faith and what do you need to do to freely receive something? Notice, these people didn't earn this faith. It wasn't because these people worked so hard that now they are on equal standing with the Apostle Peter. They freely received this equal standing with the Apostle. What do you need to do to receive something? Simply accept it. If I were to give you a birthday, if it was your birthday today, 
I walked up and I handed you a birthday present. What would you need to do? Did you earn that birthday present? No, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Just because you were such a cool guy, right? <laughs> no, you didn't earn it. It was a gift given to you, freely given. All you would have to do is accept it. That is the grace that God has lavished upon us. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. He has lavished it upon us, and all we have to do is accept it. So it's a faith of equal standing. Now this term faith, Peter was an apostle, and he wanted to let them know that there was no hierarchy within the church. It wasn't Peter up here and they down here. He's calling them an equal, and everyone who is in Christ is equal in Christ. This was a radical statement. It was a radical statement because the Jews, he's writing to an audience that, that were Jews and Gentiles. The Jews knew they were God's chosen people. And this started to make them a bit arrogant. So they started to look down their nose at the Gentiles, and they might think, hey, we're God's chosen people. We are a gift to you poor little peasant Gentiles. And in their arrogance as God's chosen people, they forgot that he chose them for a specific purpose, and that purpose was to bless the world. But then the Gentiles had issues too, because they thought they were better than the Jew. The Gentiles thought, those Jews are weird. They don't work every single day. They take a day off of work? That's weird. And now we take a day off, and, and it's become pretty standard for us. Sometimes it's two days, sometimes it's three days. But, they didn't, but back in those days, you had to work to live. So taking a day off meant you had to trust God. And the Jews trusted God. That was weird. They did other weird things, like they ate pork. Or I'm sorry, the Gentiles ate pork. The Jews didn't eat pork. That's weird. Why wouldn't you eat bacon? That's delicious. That's weird, you guys don't. They only worshiped one God. For, for the Gentiles, that was weird. Why wouldn't you just take on every single God that you possibly could? That's weird. And since they were weird, they were hated. This idea of equality that both Jew and Gentile were equal in God. That's weird. That's radical. And we th sometimes we think we're better, but, but we still struggle with some of the same issues. People of different cultures. And because they're of a different culture, we think they're weird. And we begin to dislike them, or we begin to think that we're better than them. There is an arrogance in the American church because we look at other cultures and we think that their church needs to look like our church. And we may not hate them, but oftentimes we think we're better. That's not okay. If you're in Christ, you're equal. There is not a single person that is better than someone else in Christ. Or sometimes we start to think that, you know, you got the missionaries up here, the pastors here, the children's, ch children's ministry leaders are here. 
and then just your regular lay folk are down here. And it's just not true. Everyone is equal in Christ. The person who almost OD'd last night on whatever drug it was, who's lived their life throwing their body away to drugs, to alcohol, to other physical pleasures, the person that did that just last night but came to know Christ today is equal with the missionary that has dedicated their entire life to Christ. There is no one better. We are all equal in Christ. It's important for us to note. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, and then he tells us how we've obtained this equality. And this is important for us to note because without being in Christ, we're not equal. When you look to the world, there is nothing that makes us all equal. There's no reason why we shouldn't divide ourselves up, why we shouldn't believe in a hierarchy, why we shouldn't fight over resources. When I was in college, I majored in sociology. Don't measure in sociology, by the way. It was kind of a waste of four years, but, but I did it, so now I can tell you not to. Uh, so I, I made, and there was this one big theory that everybody kind of re revolved around, and it was called the conflict theory. And the conflict theory, the basic idea was this. There is limited resources in this world, and so we parse ourselves up in groups to fight over these resources. And we naturally develop a hierarchy to fight over these resources. So no matter how you slice it, in this world, you will have people that think they are superior and people that think they are inferior. Without Christ, I think that's true. But it has no place in Christ. And then he tells us how we've obtained it. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Without the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, without his righteousness, we will automatically default to a hierarchy. We will automatically default to some being superior and some being inferior. But with Jesus Christ and his righteousness, we can now see each other as equals. We can now see each other, someone that you may have hated at one point you can now see that they were made in the image of God and that God loves them and lavishes his grace upon them and has called you to do the same. But it all starts with his righteousness. It's all based on his righteousness. This term righteousness means to be morally perfect. Morally perfect. Jesus Christ is morally perfect. And because of his moral perfection, we are now equal. We now no longer need to break ourselves up into groups of superior and inferior. So it's based on his righteousness. And then he gives us a short prayer. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge 
of God and Jesus our Lord. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You'll notice in a lot of New Testament letters, these two go hand in hand. And they go hand in hand because you can't have peace without grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. He has lavished his unmerited favor upon you. And this is important to understand because we think we need to earn God's favor. We think if we're just good enough, if I just have the right doctrine, if I just work hard enough, if I just do the right things, God will favor me. And I hear this all the time. Don't do that. You'll lose God's favor. That's false. God has lavished his favor on you, despite of you. Because we didn't earn it. There was nothing we did to deserve it. We actually don't deserve his favor. But he lavished it upon us anyways. And it is his grace that produces peace. Peace means to live harmoniously and in security. And in this reference in particular, it means to live harmoniously and in security with your relationship with God. In your relationship with God. So because of his moral righteousness... We can, and because he has lavished his grace upon us, we can live harmoniously and securely with God. The opposite of peace is chaos. And if you are not living harmoniously with God and in security with God, the end result will be chaos in your own life. Now, some people have learned how to control the chaos so that they look pretty good. I've known quite a few older people that don't believe in God, and even though they don't believe in God, they still curse God, right? And they're living in this chaos, but they've learned to contain the chaos to a certain extent. They've learned to live with controlled chaos. But if you don't have peace with God, then you'll have chaos in the rest of your life. You can't have a fully peaceful life if you don't have peace with God. And so it is his grace that he lavishes upon us that gives us peace with him. And it is not something that we can earn. It says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord. This word knowledge is epigenosko. So, gnosko is just plain knowledge. Epigenosko means more of like an intimate knowledge. For the Second Temple Jew, epigenosko meant to actually live it out. You didn't actually have this knowledge until you really started living it out. Until then, you had some information. Until you started living that information out, you didn't have epigenosko. think of it as when I was in high school athletics, I was in wrestling, and, and we learned a lot of different moves and would go step by step for each move, right? So if you wanted to do a reversal, you'd, you'd learn you raise your arm up first, and then you put this arm back on their arm, and, and you start to do the twist. But then they'd start to drill you over and over again. So you might have the information. You might know, this arm's got to shoot up. This arm. But they'd keep drilling you until you didn't have to think about it anymore it just became second nature. And that's what this term epigenosko means. So his prayer is that God's grace and his peace will continue to multiply within our lives 
as we gather this epigenosco of God. Meaning, how do we change our behavior? How do we have peace in this life? It's by continually reminding ourselves of who God is and who we are. That he is the creator and we are the created. That he has lavished his grace upon us. That he has taken us from being dead in our trespasses and sins to being alive together with him. And as we continually remind ourselves of that, we grow in the grace that he has put, put us in and we begin to live it out. So that's the way that our behavior changes. It's not by behavior modification. It's not, I had this friend that worked, at, worked with me at that airline, and he hated the fact that he would cuss all the time. He hated it. He hated it, but it was a habit that had taken over him, and so he told me, Aaron, what I want you to do is every time you hear me cuss, just punch me as hard as you can. And that way I will train my body not to do it anymore because it won't like getting punched. And I was like, are you serious, man? You're giving me permission to just haul off and punch you? He's like, yeah, just do it. And I would leave bruises on his arm. It did zero for that bad habit. In fact, I think it might have doubled it because there were some times when he'd say a word and he'd forget that I was listening and whap! And then that word would come back again like, what? What's going on? Oh, yeah, that's right. You can't do a behavior modification. You're just going to pound your head against the wall. You're just going to get punched by your best friend. It's not going to work. It is by changing your theology, by reminding yourself of God's grace, that things begin to change. And he continues, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So by his divine power, this divine power shows that he is deity, that he is God, he is the creator, and it is through his creation power, through his creative power, his divine power, that he is granted, meaning he has generously given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have everything you need. Everything you need that pertains to life and godliness, everything that you... Everything that you need to live out a life that God has called you to, you have already. Oftentimes we forget that though, right? And false teachers, they want to convince us that we lack something. The false teacher says, you lack something, and I have it. You lack something, and I have it, so come to me and be submissive to me so that I could give you something that you lack. And what Peter is letting us know is that we lack nothing. Sometimes, though, we forget that we lack nothing. The house that we bought here in Flagstaff, we got a really good deal on because we moved in before they could move out, and they, they needed to like store their stuff at our house for, I think it was like three or four or six months. So we put all of their stuff in this storage shed out back, and when the time came, they started moving out, and comes out one nail gun, two nail guns, three nail guns, all of the same type of nail guns. I know some of you carpenters are like, well, yeah, you got to have at least three different. <laughs> but they were all like trim nail guns. And I was talking to the neighbor about that. He said, oh, yeah, what would happen is uh, 
he would say, oh, man, I, I don't know where I put my nail gun. Oh, no big deal. I'll just go buy a new one. And he did that. with. I mean, he had so many of the same thing because he had the tools. He had every tool that he needed. But he'd forget that he had it or he'd forget where he placed it. And instead of going and searching, he'd just go buy a new one. And we do that too. We forget that we have it. God has given you every tool that you need for godliness. But you forget that you have it. And when you forget that you have it, you begin to fall prey to false teachers. So he is, his divine power has granted to us all things. You lack nothing that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So notice that there. Where do we get our tools from? It's through him. And what are the tools? It's through study of his word. So it is through the study, through that epigenosco of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So as we study his word, as we learn more about him, we develop those tools and we live that life that he has called us to. And he's done it through his own glory and his own excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Notice the granted here. Once again, he's generously given us these precious, meaning of high worth, and very great, meaning these remarkable promises. So he's given us these promises. And what are these promises? Well, for the persecuted church, this was really important to hold on to because when you're being persecuted, when you're getting beat daily, when, you're, when your family and your friends are being taken away to be killed, what's the one thing you can hope in? God's promises. Now, he doesn't promise that we're going to have this fantastic life. He doesn't promise that you're going to live the most comfortable life you could ever have. What he does promise is in the end, in the end, when this is all said and done, when, when your life is over, when this world is over, God's mercy and grace and love and justice will play out. So our hope is in God's final mercy and grace and love and justice. Our hope isn't in justice in this lifetime. And if we overemphasize, and we should care about justice because God cares about justice, but if we overemphasize justice in this lifetime, we will be disappointed. Because even if we lived in a utopian society that was as perfect as it could be, there would still be death. And anybody who has lost someone too early in life, a parent who has lost a child, a spouse who has died early, you know that that was not the way things were supposed to be. You know that that doesn't feel right. 
So where do you trust? That in the end, in eternity, God's justice will be played out. And the thing is, as the creation, not the creator, we're not even entirely sure how God's justice plays out. But we know that he is the definition of just. He has perfect justice. And whatever area in your life that has been wronged, whatever area in your life that has been a struggle, you can trust that in the end, God's perfect justice will play out. Those are the promises that we can trust. So that through them, through his promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. And this, this last part is basically saying, look, the, the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire is here because Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, sinned and rebelled against God. And ever since then, we have rebelled and sinned against God. And so all the corruption that we see around us, it's not just moral corruption, but physical corruption as well. Every bit of corruption that we see is because of sin. Because we shook our fist at God in rebellion, we allowed corruption into this world. And as a result, we have been slaves to sin and corruption. But because of his great promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. And essentially what this is saying is, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a slave to sin. You couldn't get out of that sin. But when you put your faith and trust in him, he took you out of that sin and made you alive together with him so that you are no longer a slave to sin. But now you are a partaker of his divine nature. He has put you in the area of righteousness. He has declared you righteous. And it is because of his moral righteous that you are now seen as perfectly righteous, flawless, pure. And how we go about living that out is reminding us reminding ourselves of this every single day. Every time you mess up, every time you have a rebellion against God, every time you, you have a behavior that you absolutely hate about yourself, what's the solution? It's to come back to this and say, God has made me a partaker of his divine nature. He has made me righteous with him. He has given me grace and peace. He's made me equal with every other Christian. He has promised me that in the end, his perfect mercy, his perfect grace, his perfect love, his perfect justice will play out. And as we remind ourselves of that every day and every time we mess up, we grow and we mature in this divine nature that he has made us partakers of.
God has lavished his grace upon you. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. You didn't work hard enough for it. Conversely, you can't lose it. It is by reminding yourself of this every day that you grow in it. During the series, I would like you to walk through 2 Peter with me. And every day, remind yourself of the grace and the mercy he has poured out for you. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that although we rebelled against you and we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that you made us alive together with you. That you've made us partakers of your divine nature, that you have placed your righteousness as a cover over us, declaring us righteous. And we pray that you will help us to grow in that righteousness. In your name we pray.